Welcome to season two of the Lead with Indeed podcast, where we chat with the experts about the world of work. Here, authors, researchers, and industry leaders share their expertise on the science of talent acquisition, management, the future of work, and much, much more. I'm Liz Lewis, anthropologist, writer, and researcher at Indeed. On today's show, I'm speaking with Ada Tarkey, author of the 2020 book, Evidence-Based Recruiting. Ada is also the founder and CEO of ECA Partners, a data-driven staffing and executive search firm. With a background in consulting, a passion for database solutions, and a global lens on the world of work, he brings a unique perspective to talent. And today he's here to share his insights with us. Let's get started. Ada Tarkey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You have a very global lens on on work and life. Um, could you give us a little bit of background to how you ended up um, where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Iran, the year of the revolution, 1979. And when I was seven, uh, my parents decided to move to Sweden. I thought we were going to go to Switzerland and have a lot of chocolate, but instead we ended <laughs> up in the most northern city in Sweden, where it was minus 40 degrees Celsius. Oh my gosh. And growing up in an environment like that, um, we were not very wealthy. My three brothers and I were sharing a room. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something where I felt where my work actually had an impact. And later when I went to my university studies in Sweden, we did not have a formalized career counseling group or institutions. So that was organized by all the students on a volunteer basis. And I was one of those volunteers who within the span of one year, I helped set up 70 different companies coming to our university and presenting on what we should do when we graduated from our university. And me standing in the back of the room and making sure that the catering was set up correctly, uh, I was a little bit impressed by, or I was very impressed by the story that the management consulting firms had to tell. So graduating out of my university in Stockholm, I applied for some jobs and I got a job in Munich in Germany at a strategy consulting firm because like a lot of folks in Sweden, I had picked up German in school and I wanted to put it to use. Mm -hmm. And after a few years at the Munich office, I had this phenomenal opportunity to come and work in sunny Los Angeles. And <laughs> as a 27 year old guy, I thought to myself, who wouldn't take this opportunity? <laughs> and I moved out here and I had been here for about a year where something quite remarkable happened. A store where I would spend the Sunday afternoons browsing through the aisles and figuring out which movie I'm going to watch uh -huh. went out of business. Working in strategy consulting in Los Angeles, we worked a lot with media and entertainment clients. So it didn't take much for me to help me figure out that this tiny startup came and within the span of a few years, put them out of business. And the question I kept asking myself is why? And I would come up with different answers. Well, they had a better platform. They had a better customer experience. They had a better strategy. And then I kept asking about why. Why did they have a better customer experience? Why did they have better distribution? Why did they have better strategy? And in the end, I kind of like surmised it in one word. They had better talent. That's what allowed them to have better strategy. That's what allowed them to have better distribution. Yeah. 
And that's when I decided to leave my career in management consulting and come and start a company in the talent space. Because I felt like if you want to build a successful company, it starts with the talent you have on board. What led you to write the book? Uh, When I was starting my firm, the main pitch a recruiting firm, an executive search firm had was we have the best and thickest Rolodex of executives in this certain field. And that was their main differentiating factor. Yeah. And part of the hypothesis I had when starting the firm was that in this day and era, you can find information if you know where to look for it. Mm -hmm. It's not about having the best Rolodex of executives. It's about knowing where to find that information and then how to engage those candidates and how to evaluate those candidates and try to predict their on-the-job success. I thought, well, it'd be fun to try to bring all that knowledge together and publish a book and help the overall industry uh, progress in that direction. By following the advice in my book, you can figure out what does actually work and double down on those steps. How do you define evidence-based recruiting? What does this mean? And if all recruiting isn't based on evidence, what is it based on? Sure. I think evidence-based recruiting will mean something different to different organizations. Okay. Um, At the core of it, it's a systematic and process-based approach to hiring. Now, if you're a larger organization, it means that it's an approach for isolating various steps in the hiring process, testing for best methods in that step, uh, learning and improving these steps one at a time. I compare evidence-based recruiting to going to a doctor's office. Um, where you still want them to try to follow the best practices from other institutions, the university institutions, et cetera, that conduct all that testing, but you can't do it yourself. So if you go to a doctor office and say, hey, doctor, um, I, I have back pain. You don't want the doctor to say, Liz, that's great. We'll set up a 20-year-long double-blinded study with another group of folks <laughs> who have back pain to find out why that is. Uh, That would be doing a fully scientific type recommendation for you. But evidence-based method is more for the doctor to say, okay, based on all the evidence, asking you a bunch of clarifying questions, maybe running some tests, saying it indicates that this is the root cause of your back pain. Let's start with this approach. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. In a nutshell, what are employers getting wrong when it comes to recruiting? What are the biggest missteps that you see? The biggest misstep is that they don't create the so-called feedback loop. Uh, What I mean by that is that they do something that feels very good or feels like it should be the right thing, but then they never go back and check if it actually worked or not. But if you actually set up a process where you would measure and say like, well, my gut feeling said that this person should be a star, a year later you could go, go and check well, was my gut feeling correct or not? Many employers say they understand the importance of good hires and good hiring practices, Um, but you write that their actions indicate otherwise. How can employers shift their thinking and their processes to improve both? I would say it starts with truly understanding if having the best employees on your team makes a difference or not. And the work streams might change day to day. Situations might change week to week, year to year. There, it's extremely important to have adaptable employees who can learn, adapt, and produce good results. And 
in those situations, if you can actually go back and see what is the benefit for making better hiring decisions, and you truly put a number to it, then you can also start changing your processes in terms of hiring. And just one more point on putting a number to the benefit of better hiring processes. There are, of course, two sides to that coin. One mm-hmm. is the cost of making a bad hire, mm-hmm. and the other one is the benefit of making a good hire. Uh, human beings are unfortunately as, or fortunately, I would say, as diverse as snowflakes. Uh, that's what makes us beautiful, but that's also what makes it so complex in terms of hiring. When it comes to recruiting, how can hiring managers and recruiters work together most effectively? And along similar lines, what value does a recruiter add that isn't found elsewhere? That is a great question. I would say um, the main thing hiring managers can do to work more effectively with their recruiters is to Mm -hmm. define success. Okay. Uh, One mistake I've seen in a lot of organizations is that hiring managers uh, don't take the kind of like ownership of a search and defining success, whether it comes to the search process or the type of candidate they want. In terms of the type of candidate, they say, well, I know it when I see it. And (laughs) no one's going to be able to read into your mind and understand what that candidate is. And if you do take the time of working with your recruiters and defining that success as clearly as possible, and here's where the quantitative piece comes out, as quantitatively as possible. Uh, what a recruiter can do in terms of finding people and evaluating them based on objective criteria, their resume, their pedigree, their work experience. Mm-hmm. And then when they're speaking to them, how can they screen those candidates for more qualitative aspects of the candidate. And if a recruiter has talked to 10 or 20 candidates who all fit your quantitative or objective criteria, and then none of those fit your subjective criteria, the question is, can we uh, make the screening process more efficient in some way? Because if they can't look for a person and screen them for you, then you have a problem. Why are interviews so challenging and what are some of the most common mistakes that employers make when it comes to job interviews? I believe interviews are so challenging, A, because it's a very unnatural environment. (laughs) Um, So you're meeting someone for the first time oftentimes or you've just met them a couple of times and then you're Uh supposed to sit there and divulge everything about yourself or ask them everything about that person. It becomes very personal very quickly, and that part of it is unnatural. Okay. Um, B, it's, it's an unperfect method of trying to assess someone and see if this person is going to be good on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to hire a basketball player, you could either... Um, ask them, are you good at playing basketball? That's what we do in the interview process. You could ask them to give you examples of when they've been good in the past when they played basketball and everyone can come up with a story when they were the MVP of that game. You could ask them, how would you try to dribble around LeBron James if he was in front of you? And that's a situational (laughs) interview question. You could ask their peers, how good is this person? Or their coaches, how good is this person? You could look at their past performance as a basketball player. Unfortunately, oftentimes in the hiring process, we don't have that objective data 
in their past performance that you can track in sports, or you could watch them play. That becomes kind of like more of a on-the-job assessment, if you will, or um, job-specific assessment. In terms of improving interview processes, what are some... What are some things that employers can start doing now to improve their interview processes and also their interview skills, their interviewing skills? Yep. So let me start with the interviewing skills. Uh, Going back to that whole awkwardness question around Mm -hmm. interviewing someone for the first time. It's not just awkward for the interviewee. It's also awkward for the interviewer. (laughs) And I've worked with a lot of interviewers where I see them asking a question and the candidate doesn't quite answer what they were asking for. Or the candidate sure. gives an answer that just covers parts of what they were asking for. And then the interviewer just nods and moves on to the next question on their list. And I'd say one of the most tangible things organization can work on is on interviewing skills around digging deeper into questions and uh, into probing questions. How do you probe during an interview to get deeper into an answer to really understand if it was a good answer or not, or if this person has the skills you want or not. And probing questions can be come across a little bit as abrupt and people don't want to be rude and say, Liz, that doesn't answer my question, answer my question. That would be a little bit kind of like rude to say that. Mm-hmm. What you could do instead is to use softening statements, saying uh, something like, oh, I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. I want to make sure that I'm not quoting you incorrectly. And then he's like, can you walk me through this part of the answer one more time? Can you help me understand this piece one more time? And if you practice those probing skills, I've seen interviewers improve tremendously and be able to get much better information out of the interviews. So that's one concrete thing they could work on. And at a broader scale, I would say just, applying a little bit more structure to their interviews. A lot of organizations I work with, they're not very intentional about their interviews. They go into the interviews and they're like, have a free format, one to two hour discussion. They come back and they give a candidate a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I would say if you sit down and think a little bit in advance of it, uh, the conversation like, okay, what are we trying to get out of this? What would be good? Define good and define bad. Don't go in there saying like, well, I know it when I see it. Uh, Define good and define bad and see what questions you could ask to get to good or bad in a candidate. And then divide and conquer a little bit where you say, well, Liz, why won't you take care of all the fit questions and after you take care of all the technical questions or the other way around. Excellent. That's very helpful. And it seems like it's also a good way to to mitigate what you describe as group think in the book, right? Where you have a group of people interviewing somebody and maybe they come together and they end up focused more on how charismatic they were, how likable, or, you know, whoever the loudest person involved, the loudest voice within the interview panel, um, what they think. And it seems like this is a much more systematic approach that, enables people to sort of compare apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges. Do you think that's a that's an accurate assessment? That is a very accurate. And I would okay. say the danger with groupthink is that I'll come out of the interview room and then while I'm handing over the Candace resume to you, I do a thumbs up. You're already biased going into that interview then. 
Um, there are a number of different factors that creep into bias. And I would say if um, not wanting to be biased or having good intentions was enough to solve the problem with biases, we'd already solved it in large sure. parts. I work with a lot of organizations that say they want diversity. I work with a lot of organizations that say they want to address the biases they have in their interview process. But one of the biggest mistakes I see organizations doing today is that in order to also feel like there are good employers and a good organization, they've created a very consensus-driven culture. And then they end up having 12 people on their interviewing panel. Yeah. And I can tell you that even if the bias is hidden and unintentional, and even if it's very small, if you get put someone through a 12 different interviews and everyone in that interview process has a veto power, mm-hmm. there's going to be some, especially for diverse candidates, there's going to be at some level where that diverse candidate is not going to click with someone on the interview panel and unintentionally they're going to turn that person down. Mm-hmm. So I would say the first thing I would do in an organization is to try to limit the number of interviews with a candidate. That's fascinating. That's great. Um, okay. So my final question, let's say I'm an employer. I've read your book. I've seen the light and I've realized it's time to improve my recruiting processes. What are three things I can do starting now to set the wheels in motion toward better hiring? Great question. I'd say number one thing, understand how much it's worth to you. Okay. So then do a quick back of envelope calculation and see how much would it be worth to me to have a better hiring process. And a litmus test there is, if you're not willing to spend a fraction of that amount, let's say a third of that amount, to improve your hiring process, you probably don't believe in that number. So redo that exercise until you're willing to invest real dollars behind investing your hiring process. The second thing you can do is take one of the top five people in your organization and assign them to talent acquisition and improving your recruiting processes. And number three is start measuring today. The sooner you start measuring different aspects of your recruiting and hiring process, the sooner you'll start improving them. 20 years ago, the saying in marketing used to be half of my spend is wasted. I just don't know which half. I'd say that recruiting is now where marketing was 20 years ago. I'm speaking with Ada Tarki, author of Evidence-Based Recruiting and founder and CEO of ECA Partners. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm Liz Lewis. My thanks to our guest, Ada Tarki, and a big thanks to you for listening. Today, we learned how to use data and metrics to hire better, smarter, and more efficiently. With evidence-based recruiting, employers can gain scientific and actionable insights into their approach to talent and use this knowledge to improve. Subscribe to Lead with Indeed for additional content, episodes, and to hear from a variety of experts on work, talent, leadership, and more. Find more content, videos, and articles about the world of recruiting at indeed.com lead.